0: welcome to voices of the valley a series interviewing growers entrepreneurs educators and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm brought to you by readley college educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology efficient production practices and food safety now here's your hosts of voices of the valley dennis donahue and candace wilson this is Dennis Donahue. Welcome back to another episode of Voices of the Valley. And as always, my good friend Candace Wilson is here. Candace, good to see you.
1: Always a pleasure. How are you today?
0: I'm doing well. And I think this is going to be a guest that I think you're going to be able to particularly relate to. We're uh, joined today by Alex Cochran, who's the Chief Technology Officer for DPH Biologicals. And uh, we're in California and he's in Indianapolis. But uh, through the magic of Zoom, we're all together. and uh, Alex, we're delighted to uh, have you join us this morning.
2: Yeah, thank you very much, Dennis. Pleased to be here.
0: Good. Well, we're particularly excited, and we'll talk about this a little later, as you know, and you're going to be one of our feature attractions. Uh, Salinas is going to have the biological summit in June, and uh, you're going to be part of the cast of characters that we think uh, is going to really fully explore the whole biological space. So uh, we're delighted you'll join us for that as well. So we know there's a sequel, so we're excited about that. But before we kind of get into things a little bit, you know, we always like to have our guests talk a little bit about their career journey to what you're currently doing. And and we've chatted before, and uh, we even know you've spent some time in the Central Valley, so you're familiar with our neck of the woods.
2: Yeah, no, it's... It, uh... I always remember fondly starting my career actually in agriculture in the Central Valley postgraduate school. So, you know, it, it was a great way to really be stretched and learn about California agriculture and the diversity of California agriculture, especially coming, you know, from the Midwest. I am an Indiana native. I did all of my undergraduate and graduate training at Purdue University and ultimately finished with my doctorate in plant pathology. Thought when I left school that I'd be taking a a role with Syngenta in Champaign, Illinois, and focused on corn and soybeans, and particularly soybeans for me is what I've spent a career working on in graduate school. And then lo and behold, the opportunity emerged, uh, or I should say, the role was reprioritized to move to Visalia, California, and work on a research farm that at the time, this would have been early in 2001, Syngenta was just forming as a company, as you all recall, you know, having just gone through the merger that formed Syngenta between Zeneca and Novartis. And at that time, they had, they being Syngenta, we were actually operating on two different research farms They had not yet consolidated their operations. That's how early it was in the merger. So one research farm near Reedley and the other research farm just outside of Visalia, right on the Farmersville border. So spent a lot of quality time working on both research farms, uh, ultimately, you know, having a chance, you know, the Reedley farm very focused on, it. as you might imagine, in that area, tree fruit uh, and crops that are important in that area. The Vicelia farm uh, was much more of a multi-purpose farm, both trees, row crops, and of course, all sorts of vegetables, cotton, and other crops that are typical in California. Didn't work with soybeans. In fact, never saw a soybean in my time on either of those research farms, but really uh, remember that very fondly. The opportunity to be stretched and work with lots of of different crops, lots of different technologies like seed treatment technologies, post-harvest fungicide technologies, and the opportunity to collaborate with some of the individuals in the University of California system like Dr. James Adeskavich Mm -hmm. or Dr. Ole Becker, who were tremendous mentors for me, uh, helping me understand California agriculture, some of the key pests that uh, were important to California growers. And and ultimately identify technologies that can help provide support for California growers in trying to mitigate the impact of those pests. So yeah, I had the opportunity, I started my career there, first five years of my career in California with Syngenta, and then left. I had a chance to go uh, work in the Syngenta headquarters in Basel, Switzerland, in a global development role, uh, and then actually returned to California just a little over two and a half years later. To take on a role uh, focused on global development of post-harvest fungicides, which was a growing area for Syngenta at the time, uh, and a newly created role out in, the, in their business office in California. Uh, and that went on for another three or so years. And then ultimately, uh, my last role with Syngenta was leading the, the agronomy service reps for the western U.S., so you know basically everything west of the Rockies for Syngenta, So, you know, some people may know those roles better as technical service reps, but when Syngenta integrated their seeds and crop protection businesses, they rebranded that agronomy service rep. So that was my last role with Syngenta and then took the opportunity courtesy of a a friend of mine and and actually the current CEO of uh, DPH Biologicals, Mick Messman, to join Mick in helping build and lead uh, in R&D, both commercial and development. I led the R&D portion Uh, Seed treatment technology team at DuPont and DuPont Pioneer. So, a business that actually kind of sat in between those two very large businesses within DuPont at the time and then ultimately became Corteva. And at that time, my experience with biologicals really came to the forefront. So, you know, one thing that I came to appreciate is the importance of biologicals in agriculture, not just as a niche technology, but actually as a mainstream technology, particularly as it relates to the seed treatment use of biologicals. And I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate just how broadly deployed biologicals are today, uh, because in some cases, unless growers ask the right questions, they're not even aware that biologicals may be on the seed that they purchase and plant. So as an example, in my time at Pioneer, we led and, and ultimately launched a project tied to positioning, you know, not just rhizobium inoculants, which I think have been a common part of soybean culture here in the United States for some time, but, you know, actually in this case, bacillus inoculants. So bacillus-based bacteria as inoculants on seed for either, in this case, both plant protection as well as early stimulation of the crop. So incorporating a bacillus inoculant on virtually every unit of corn and soybean sold by Corteva by, under the Pioneer brand across the United States. So impacting literally millions and millions of acres uh, here in the U.S. with a biological as a component of that total seed treatment recipe. So that's part of what I hope to touch on today is the, the opportunity to think about biologicals as a mainstream part of how we manage crop production versus a niche technology, which is kind of where I think, you know, maybe a lot of growers might have those kinds of technologies in mind when they think about biologicals in production agriculture.
1: I'm curious, as in your current like day to day, how do you engage with like the R and D portion of this, and what do you see like the near term opportunities are to expand that portfolio?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So you know, since you know I made the decision two years ago to leave uh, Corteva and really just focus exclusively on biologicals, and obviously the chief technology officer, my main role is around technology development, technology scouting on behalf of DBH. You know, our goal is kind of multifold at DBH1. We want to, you know, of course, develop and grow our current portfolio of technologies. We have a suite of both biofertility and biocontrol technologies that we sell here in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. in many countries, but also look to bring in technology working with partners. So, you know, the one thing I'd say that I've really enjoyed about the whole biological space is there's a lot of collaboration that goes on in this space between uh, like-minded companies. And as many people are probably aware, there are a lot of players in the space. So this is an industry that, you know, while it's certainly seeing some consolidation, I think probably many are aware of some of the, the recent announcements. Genta, for example, in the past, having acquired uh, Pesturia Biosciences uh, some time ago. Horteva recently announcing the acquisition of Stolar as an example. Uh, Simborg as well was a fairly recent acquisition. And then Bear, of course, with AgriQuest some time ago, seems like forever, but it really wasn't that long ago. Was kind of the first wave of consolidation in this space. That said, there are still a lot of companies like DPH, smaller basic manufacturers, inventors of technology that are looking to collaborate uh, and help bring that technology and scale it for mass adoption by growers across Both the United States and of course outside the US and in many other parts of the world where the technology may have a fit. I guess answering your question, collaboration, I think, is a big piece of where biologicals can move further, collaborating with different companies. And then also, you know, just the opportunity to have growers thinking about these technologies as being something more than just an add-on or a niche technology, but actually being a mainstream part, no different than applying a herbicide might be in their operation, for example that common. And you know, as I mentioned earlier, a reference in the seed treatment space, that is kind of where we're at now with biologicals, where they truly are as much a part of a, a seed treatment recipe as a fungicide or an insecticide might be.
1: I'm curious also, you know, from a technical perspective, are there certain crops that respond more favorably to biologicals? Or can it, can you explain some of that yeah, just about, I guess, I assume that would also help with the prioritization and developing a pipeline for certain crops, the speed to market as well.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, well, you know, part of development, of course, what goes hand in hand with development are the business cases that support investment. As you might imagine, you know, the major row crops, you know, certainly attract the lion's share of attention just by the sheer size of production you know, 90, 90 plus million acres of corn. You know, seventy to eighty million acres of soybeans just here in the United States, and you know, all, lots of that production outside of the U.S. Those are certainly areas that we at DPH have been intensely focused on. We're a midwestern-based company. That said, specialty crops has really been kind of a first mover in this biological space, and I recall this from my you know very early days with Syngenta. You know, working with growers, getting lots of questions about biologicals and combinations of biologicals. Can I tank mix this particular technology, you know, with a Syngenta fungicide that I might have been researching at the time? So, you know, I think the specialty crop area is one. You see a number of companies in the biological space that are based in and operate out of California. You know, the focus has been, I think, very intensely around You know, certainly, you know, vegetables, of course, has been one area that's been very, you know, seen a lot of attention and also permanent crops as well. uh, has certainly gotten a fair bit of attention for biological technologies. You know, the thing a lot of people think, and certainly we have a part of DPH's lineage that goes back 30 plus years. You think about where biological technology started. In many cases, the focus uh, may have been on organic production of crops, Because the tool set, especially the synthetic tool set for organic growers, is incredibly limited. And with biological technologies, many of those can be used in organic production. We have several technologies in our own portfolio that can be used in organic production. And if you think about where organic production is most relevant, it's relevant in crops grown in California. A lot of the specialty crops, you don't think so much about organic corn or organic soybeans, not to say they don't exist. But it's a much smaller segment. Of the production that goes on. In the case of specialty crops, of course, organic production can be a significant percentage of the production that goes on. So, as you might imagine, with biological technologies, you know, maybe having started with a bit of a focus towards organic production as an area that was maybe more accessible than conventional, you know, those crops kind of attracted the early attention. You know, what we see at DPH, where we see the opportunity is certainly use of biologicals way beyond just organic production of crops. You know, I think we've seen the opportunity now emerge in conventional production of many different types of crops, both, you know, major row crops and specialty crops, where biologicals can play a significant role both in biofertility and biocontrol for the growers.
0: Question for you in terms of opportunities and, you know, different parts of the quote-unquote the ag tech world or Technology. The obviously the input space. The regulatory role is particularly important. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that in terms of you know from a business standpoint? You all might view them as an opportunity. Growers might view it as gee, a new challenge. But uh, uh, so where do you see opportunities in that context? Then also, where do you see opportunities in general? Because as you spend time with growers, it's clear that synthetics, you know, just not able to address every concern folks have. So there are opportunities along those lines as well. But could you expand a little bit about on the opportunity thing and then kind of incorporate into that thought, you know, how does the regulatory environment work in terms of product development, uh, product selection, that type of thing from your perspective?
2: Yeah, that's a big question, Dennis, and and there is a lot going on in terms of regulation of biological technologies, both here in the United States and then, you know, certainly abroad as well. You know, I mean, what has been attractive for a lot of companies that have become involved in the space is the opportunity to bring technologies into the market considerably faster, particularly on the biocontrol side, where, you know, development timelines to bring, you know, from discovery to actually launching a technology can easily be you know, seven to 10 years and seven being really, really optimistic. You know, in the case of biological technologies, it can be more like three to five years and sometimes even faster. In the case of biofertility technologies, it can even be faster than that, depending on the regulation within a specific state. So that's maybe one key point to draw out in that whole regulatory space is biofertility technologies get regulated differently than biocontrol technologies. Biocontrol technologies are under the mandate of EPA regulations, so under FIFRA, and they do go through a traditional review process at the federal level and then are approved at the state level. In the case of biofertility technologies, those are evaluated on a state-by-state basis here in the United States, uh, and each state has different regulations, different things they look for in a dossier, or some states in some cases don't review dossiers at all. They exempt those types of technologies, and they're immediately approved upon submission to the state. So it's a bit more complex on the biofertility side in that sense, as you've got, you know, 50 regulatory bodies instead of essentially one in the biocontrol space, and they do think differently, those 50 regulatory bodies. That said, generally, biological technologies do get a favorable and speedier path to registration and ultimately Uh, for use by growers by the nature of the technology. And again, you know, in the case of biocontrol, it can be a much, much faster development timeline to get a final commercial product into the marketplace. That's attractive. It's also, you know, greatly uh, cost-enabled as well. And what I mean by that is generally the costs to de-risk the technology for, you know, ultimately for commercialization can be considerably lower than synthetic technology. The kinds of studies the EPA requires for dossiers are greatly reduced compared to synthetic technology. So, you know, lower cost of development and then ultimately faster timelines to bring it to the market make that very attractive in terms of being able to bring technology forward for providers like BPH.
1: So I spend so much time engaging with the grower community and talking about biologicals. The word that always comes out of their mouth is snake oil. Yes. Yes. How do we overcome this perception of, you know, the value of this is almost non-existent, you're wasting my time. And that's for sure a an exaggerated statement. But there is this perception that is creating an uphill battle. While they understand that we're going to need new tools in our toolbox, I have the sour taste in my mouth of other products that have knocked at the door over the years.
2: Yeah, it, this is a great And it's something that I'm very passionate about in regards to just, frankly, the the single biggest challenge we have in the biological space today is around trust. And there was a recent Stratus Ag survey that spoke to this. 39% of growers that were surveyed indicated they do use biologicals or would be open to using biologicals. 61% said they weren't sure. And a percentage of those, a significant percentage of those said they would not use biologicals. And it boiled down to trust. Uh, And to your point, the blessing and the curse of a low regulatory bar is there can be a lot of technologies that can quickly enter the market. And some of those technologies may not be appropriately vetted to deliver on the promises that that technology provider may be making, especially in the biofertility space. uh, This has been a common challenge. So, you know, the way you combat that is fairly straightforward. And that is high quality science, making sure that the technology providers are doing the appropriate due diligence to really understand the technology, how it works, where it's best positioned, and where the grower can have the best expectation for seeing the result. There's also a key piece around aligning expectations as well. And I, you know, I come at this, you know, from the biocontrol side as a plant pathologist. I had the opportunity in my early development days to test biological technologies and compare them to synthetic technologies. And you know, the reality is very often the biological technologies did not perform quite as well as the synthetic technologies. And there are reasons for that, that are important for growers to understand. So, you know, in part, you know, especially in the disease control space, it's really important to be preventative with technologies, but that's oftentimes not the case. You're oftentimes trying to chase down a disease after you've already started to see symptoms. That's really tough for biological technologies because these truly are preventative. Much like we think of some broad spectrum fungicides, you know, take a a chemistry like chlorothalonils, for example. It's not curative. It's not going to be able to cure something where you've got an already already established infection. It could protect new growth, but it's not going to do anything for the growth that's already infected. So biologicals are much the same way. So, you know, trying to chase down a disease with a biological, it's not going to work well. It's not going to be a good result for you. And you may be disappointed with the performance uh, if you're not truly preventative. The other piece of it is just understanding that in some cases it takes biologicals a little bit of time to activate, especially ones that are a living organism. So it is a living organism. That means it actually needs to replicate and reproduce. And in that process, it may produce metabolites that are toxic to either a insect pest or a fungal disease pest uh, or bacterial pest, for example. But it's not an instantaneous thing, whereas with chemistry, very often you know, it's toxic from the moment you apply it to the pest. So this instantaneous effect, I think, is something that growers have in their mind and have come to expect from the technology, uh, when in fact many biological technologies don't provide that instantaneous response, but they may provide a longer-term residual response than a chemistry might, which may degrade after a short period of time. So the way I like to position biologicals is they're not chemistry. They are different. They behave differently. They need, in some cases, need to be handled differently. And that's important for growers to understand through an education process that, you know, at the end of the day, these can be very useful mainstream technologies, but they may need to be managed differently than what, you know, grower practice has traditionally been with synthetic technologies.
0: So let me ask a question, and I appreciate your point that, you know, preventative front end of the crop and, uh, you know, I think back to, uh, you know when it would get warm in the summer, and it would be a certain time of the year, and you know I'd be worried about aphids. Sure. Uh, I mean, is there a biological tool to deal with that, or it's just not apples to apples, or in this case, lettuce to lettuce? It just you can't <laughs> you you can't think like that. Or speaking of lettuce, you know, in the Salinas Valley, for instance, we're really struggling with this INSV sure. uh, disease that's really tough on the crop. Is the basic idea from a biological standpoint applied? For the crop early on, the the plant's healthier and more resistant. Uh, how do you deal with the situational part of growing?
2: It, it depends a little bit on the pest, especially for diseases that are vectored by insects. You know, you need to be on those really early with the technology because you know transmission can happen quite early. You know, certainly there are biologicals for insect pests. Many of those are enema pathogens. In other words, they actually infect insects as their mode of action, if you will. Uh, so these are uh, growing in interest and importance as growers look for new tools to manage all sorts of pests, The thing I would say, Dennis, you know, what I'm most encouraged about, I come at this from, you know, fairly in a fairly pragmatic way, which is, you know, I believe the real opportunity for technology moving forward is truly an integrated approach of combining biological technologies with synthetic technologies where they can really complement each other. And, you know, as I described right. uh, in the comment that I made earlier, you know, With biological technologies, very often the residual benefit from the application of those technologies can persist for some time into the growing season, whereas a traditional chemistry may only provide a benefit for, you know, a few weeks, right, typically. So, you know, logically, the best approach would be, well, why don't I combine those technologies and try to take advantage of the upfront, you know, knockdown, if you will, provided in the case of biocontrol, provided by a chemistry and then the, the lengthier residual that may be provided by a biological. And I you see some good examples of hybrid products developing in the marketplace. Now, I will say that those do require quite a bit more sophistication, particularly you know, from a regulatory perspective. If you combine a biological with a chemistry, the regulation is going to revert back to the chemistry in terms of the length of time that it takes to ultimately register that solution. But growers even today can find ways to incorporate a biological and a chemistry together, you know, in a pest management approach. And I, you know, I, again, I, I referenced my background of seed treatment as a good example. That was the whole point of combining biologicals with seed treatments. In you know, for the grower, it was an integrated solution. You know, it was an all-in-one solution that they don't see the decoupled technologies that come together and get applied on the seed. But growers can do this today in their operation by identifying biologicals that can be re- reliably mixed with synthetic chemistry or synthetic fertility as well. I do want to uh, highlight, actually that's one of the real large areas of opportunity, I think, moving forward, is the combination of biologicals with traditional fertility approaches to be much more efficient with your fertility and get you know, essentially more bang for your buck with what you're doing on the nutrition side. We've come to learn even fairly recently just how important microorganisms are to driving plant nutrition. I think we have you know, oftentimes take that for granted. We think just making that application of nitrogen is enough, when in reality, what we've come to learn and know today is that microbes are a huge enabler for that nitrogen that deliver the end result that the grower is looking for in terms of uh, improving the health of the crop.
1: So it's such a crowded space right now. There's so much attention on the subject. And when I say crowded, you know, there's no big leader that has right. stepped into the scene and there's lots of small players. How do you picture this evolving? Is the biological space conducive to lots of small focused players? Or do you see more of a consolidation of, you know, maybe how there's four big players in agriculture right now? What's, what's the role for all of us?
2: Yeah, no, that's a good question. You know, I think the expectation is certainly that as this opportunity increases. So today, I think Mark, I've seen market estimates anywhere from six to seven billion dollars of biological technology sold annually around the globe. And I've seen estimates that, you know, by 2030, 2035, you know, anticipating the space to grow to 30, 35 billion dollars in size. That's quite an increase, you know, compounded annual growth rates. Every estimate that I've seen in the market reports have, you know, always been double digits. In some cases, as high as fourteen percent. That's insanely high growth. I think as we think about that moving forward, the reality is there will be consolidation in the industry, and you know, players will certainly get larger. We see, you know, some of the largest players in the crop protection space, you know, certainly acquiring smaller technology providers. You know, I think that will certainly continue moving forward. The exciting thing though is I do still think there's a very important role for smaller technology discoverers and inventors. And there are a lot of companies out there that, you know, their main purpose is actually to discover technology. And I think they're very nimble and they can do it very quickly, and I think that will continue to be an area of focus moving forward even with consolidation. So, you know, I think that's, you know, one of the important you know, take home messages I guess maybe, you know, one of the nice things about biologicals is there are a number of people that can enter the space relatively straightforwardly. It's not, discovery in this space isn't nearly as capital intensive as as discovery in, say, you know, a synthetic chemistry lab. So you can have more players involved. And I think you'll continue to see that. A lot of great technology, for example, has spun out of universities. And I think that will continue to be an important stream of innovation moving forward for this space and i think we'll in a certain sense still keep it fairly fragmented at the discovery level i think as you move beyond discovery into development and large scale commercialization that's where i think you know more of the consolidation will happen moving forward uh you know the opportunity to represent those technologies to the marketplace obviously takes a lot of investment and intense focus and you know that's pretty resource intensive so that's where i think you know the, the strongest amount of consolidation will occur on kind of the back end i think the front end Will still stay relatively fragmented in my view and I think there are good reasons for that.
0: Question for you and I hesitate to ask. It. this may be one of those ones where I'll feel sheepish afterwards, but as the chief technology officer and as we've talked about it, you know, typically when I think of technology, I'm thinking about the Silicon Valley and software and you know robotics, that sort of thing. Is it fair to ask or is there a technology core to all of this, hence the use of you know that that particular word? Uh, in product development?
2: Well, it's a good question. You know, obviously, a lot of tools that have recently emerged around genomics and metabolomics have helped elucidate the way biologicals work. So, you know, that's been a tremendous innovation just in the last, you know, 10, 15 years that's been critical to this space. But, you know, in terms of a, a core technology, it's a little bit tough, Dennis, because there's a lot of different, when you say biological, biological means a lot of things to a lot of people. So right. like in the of uh, DPH biologicals, our focus is really on living microbial active ingredients. But there are lots of companies that work on specific aspects that are biological. So, example, it could be a specific peptide, or uh, you know, in some cases even a double-stranded RNA as a biological solution. You know, there are various extracts that are isolated as a solution that gets sold, and and whole companies get built around a single technology in this space that's innovative so you know the core can be different depending on the technology company
0: okay. you know in our you know in
2: our case at dbh our, again our focus is around uh, specific strains of living microbes and there our core technology is the living ingredients themselves the microorganisms and you know many companies in this space you know maintain libraries of living organisms that they are regularly routinely screening and adding to and looking for, you know, improved microorganisms that they can ultimately deliver as active ingredients. That's fairly typical in our space. But again, there's a lot of different flavors of other technologies out there, enzymes, peptides, double-stranded RNA, you name it. And again, whole companies are built off of an individual technology in this space.
0: Well, you know, and as I'm listening, the other thing I'm really struck by, you know, and I just kind of think of the growers around uh, you know our valley and the, I know throughout the state you know how they really rely on their pca uh yes. you know it seems to me there's some sort of either knowledge transfer or continuing education component that folks are really th- this space seems to really beg the question of how are you going to learn all this stuff and be on top, yeah. top of the game and i mean one of the things i've been impressed with by CAPCA out here is they they certainly have a very good continuing education program but on the other hand who's providing the information becomes really important and how do you keep up with this particular space and even just take DPA how do how do you go to market how do you address the knowledge issue
2: yeah so you know we certainly work through traditional channel partners so you know large uh, national retailers are a big area of focus for us and then you know my team will work directly with their agronomy teams in terms of knowledge transfer that they would then ultimately represent in the marketplace with their growers. You know, there are different ways to go about forming, but, you know, one thing is very clear. The technology providers themselves have to own, uh, you know, a huge burden of responsibility here in regards to communicating how their technology best works, how growers should be using it. And if, you know, if a technology provider can't do that, then a grower should probably call into question whether that's a technology they are really interested in or not. So, you know, one thing we've worked very hard at DPH is, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I think a little bit earlier, the importance of around robust science, where you can credibly position the technology, the mode of action, you know, certainly helping growers understand how best to use the technology and how best not to use it, you know, as an example, kind of a fairly simple thing, but one that I often have to say in the case of a particular uh, biocontrol technology that we market you know, combining that with, you know, in the case of something that might get used, say, for example, managing fire blight in apples and pears, which I think many growers uh, would be aware of the importance of that disease, you shouldn't combine a living microbial solution with an antibiotic. It's kind of, you know, you would say, yeah, that makes sense, but you'd be surprised how easily you can get that wrong, right? So, you know, don't throw this solution in with myagromycin or streptomycin spray. That's a bad idea. An antibiotic is going to kill a bacteria, a living bacteria. So that's a tank mixture that you shouldn't do. (laughs) And, you know, things like these seem simple, but the reality is they need to be well positioned. And, you know, growers that aren't as familiar with this technology, those things that may seem simple to me as a technology provider aren't so simple at the ground level with growers. And and that's where education is absolutely critical to make sure they get the best experience possible from it. So, you know, that's something that we'll certainly, uh, you know, as we look forward to uh, the biological summit, the slings Biological Summit, that's certainly going to be an area of focus for me in discussing while there and and the importance of education uh, and helping growers understand how to realize the best experience. You know, the, the key is, Dennis, these technologies can absolutely be mainstream. And, you know, overcoming that concern that growers have in regards to, you know, the snake oil of the past, I think the real key is challenging the technology providers that you're interacting with, to you know show me the details in terms of the science that's there to support the technology and how best to use it. And if the technology provider can't do that, then you know that's probably a, a
0: point of concern. It's a red flag. Candace, you have anything?
1: I'm curious, are there other countries that have led the way in this space or, or university research or just where can we turn today for leadership? And so maybe we're not reinventing the wheel, what shortcuts exist?
2: Yeah. So, you know, in terms of countries or geographies, I mean, I think everybody, you know, certainly thinks about Europe and as Europe wrestles with the green new deal and the changes that are coming very rapidly for them, they're certainly looking to biological technologies to help offset the loss or the inability to use is probably a better way to describe synthetic technologies. Their focus in Europe is probably more so on the biocontrol side because they're seeing the exit of a lot of pesticides in that market that have been critical for growers. But in terms of a real technology leader and adopter, it's Brazil. Brazil is by far and away the fastest growing market in this biological space. You know, Growers there are using biologicals as a mainstream part uh, production practice, both biofertility and biocontrol uh, has become incredibly common in the Brazilian production system, and it continues to accelerate. So when we look at the growth rates, for sure Brazil is the leader in the space. You think about it in the United States, we also see that coming. So, you know, you got to think about what's driving it, right? So one thing we know for sure is there's a very strong consumer sentiment around sustainable agricultural production practices now what does sustainable mean right that's a big word and a lot of people think about that differently but you know one thing's for sure consumers are demanding that our agricultural practices change and start to, to utilize potentially technologies that exist in this biological space and you know there's an opportunity here for growers to get in front of it and understand how some of these technologies again can be incorporated as a mainstream part of their production practice, and not really be a burden, not be a step back for them. So, you know, the opportunity to learn about how do I incorporate these technologies and get in front of this consumer sentiment wave that doesn't seem to be going away, really started in Europe, it's kind of working its way into the United States. And we certainly see, you know, even some retailers, you know, while there may not be specific regulation around the use of certain technologies, we see certain retailers or food manufacturers stepping up and making big commitments in terms of, either reducing the presence of pesticides or reducing, you know, certain practices that may be more carbon intensive uh, and that will ultimately work its way into uh, how growers manage their farms. So, you know, we see biologicals as being a part of the solution. It's not the total solution. Uh, It is going to take, you know, multiple different technologies to help support those changes. But we think biologicals are certainly a part of that future.
1: I am somewhat shocked about your answer Brazil mainly because what you're talking about is sustainability consumer demands and all that sort of thing Europe and the United States and while I'm not as familiar with Brazil agriculture I'm so curious what has put Brazil at the top of the map do you know that why why are they leaders in this space
2: one of the big reasons is they are doing everything they can to improve productivity on their farms and accessing every tool possible so you know, many people may not be familiar with either the disease or the insect pressure or some of the fertility challenges that Brazilian growers have. But, uh, you know, I can tell you from having a lot of experience uh, in regards to product development uh, in that particular region, you know, growers are dealing with some tremendous challenges that I think would be shocking to some U.S. growers. The, you know, the intensity of insect pressure, for example, can just be remarkable you know, it truly is an IPM approach. So it's not to say chemistry isn't still very, very relevant. Absolutely it is. But they're also incorporating biologicals as a part of that solution because chemistry alone isn't getting the job done. And, uh, you know, the same with disease control. You know, the story is much the same. And that's where, you know, I go back to the hybrid solution approach. I mean, one thing, you know, we know, you know, very painfully, I think, is that pesticide resistance is a very real issue for many growers. And, you know, I think about the Valley Uh, You know, certainly we have some significant issues with resistance, uh, you know, fungicide resistance to key pests, things like botrytis and alternaria, for example. That's where biologicals can be helpful. Again, it's not a silver bullet. It's not a total solution. But as a hedge against a complete failure, if, for example, the chemistry that a grower chooses happens not to work because you've got resistance, you know, the biological is going to provide some benefit because developing resistance to the biological modes of action. I'll never say never, but it would be very, very rare. In many cases, like in, you know, in the case of one particular biofungicide that we market, you know, the way it elicits a response uh, and provides defense, one of the primary modes of action is eliciting plant defense responses. Well, you know, it's going to be impossible for a pathogen to evolve resistance to that because it's not impacting a biochemical pathway in the pathogen. It's interacting with the plant to help stimulate the plant to defend itself. So it's that kind of mode of action immune to resistance development. You know, that's where I think biologicals coupled with chemistry really makes a very elegant solution as a hedge for whether it's insect resistance or disease resistance. There is a nice opportunity to put technologies together and help offset the impact that resistance has had in agricultural production today.
1: You know what, Alex? That was the a- best answer I could have hoped for. And the reason why is because we've spent so much time talking about sustainability, regulatory environment, and these sorts of drivers that are kind of forcing the growers to focus on these opportunities and new tools. But the fact is there's all of this environmental side too, and how much more challenging it's becoming from an agronomic perspective, needing to get more off of less meaning more production off of less land and and this sort of thing, managing costs. So it really is just, just it's this perfect opportunity where you're getting pressure from both sides that are creating an environment that um, really, I guess, just has tremendous opportunity.
0: Well, Candice, you know, and Alex, it's been several months ago now. One of our guests was a venture capitalist from Brazil, and we were talking about the whole biological deal. And, you know, from a Western grower standpoint, really... The only crossover crop, so to speak, of of any substance down there is citrus, and so we, sure. so we went on to chat a little bit, and you know we're probably a little more interested in Peru, Chile, et cetera. And he goes, "Well, if you're interested in biologicals, you're way more interested in Brazil than you think." And I and I said, "Oh yeah, why is that?" He said, "We have this little thing called the Amazon, and uh, you know, from from a biodiversity, pest pressure, you know, all the things that you just just talked about." But what's interesting, and just to kind of echo Candace, you know, Brazil, they have a pretty mature ag tech scene down there, a lot of investment, a lot of corporates. They're just responding to a market opportunity and, uh, you know, and just meeting, you know, from an agronomical perspective. And and the question I have, you know, is I'm glad you're coming to Salinas in a couple of months because we could keep talking forever. So that means we're going to make sure we keep talking while you're in Salinas, but I like the phrase you used, elegant solution is, and I'm not asking this in the pejorative sense, but is the regulatory world comfortable with kind of this nuanced approach? I mean, we certainly understand more, less chemistry, more biology, right. you know, the, the IPM pie chart changes. And you alluded to this, is that a difficult place for the regulators to be that, you know, you've got to let some of this stuff just play out on the ground it, because our view, you know, certainly from a Western grower standpoint is we want the big decisions to be guided by science and economics, right? Uh, you, you know, and of course all the appropriate, you know, whether it's food, sa- whatever, whatever, you know, the things that protect consumers and uh, workers in the field, that, that sort of thing. But sure. from a regulatory standpoint, is it possible to deal with kind of that nuanced approach, uh, you know, uh, that in the end, the facts on the ground are going to determine how you approach some of this stuff?
2: Yeah, I, I think the biocontrol space, has got, you know, I think it's in a pretty good spot. So I think that, you know, the EPA has taken a fairly pragmatic approach with how they uh, evaluate those technologies and deregulate those technologies. I would say if you were talking to technology developers and providers in Europe, which which DPH is not, that's not an area of focus for us, they would probably have a different story. So the regulation in Europe is much tougher on those technologies. Right. I think a lot of people see that as a barrier to technology emerging there. The area that probably needs, well, and is getting more scrutiny is around biofertility and and biostimulants. And there is a biostimulant act progressing in Congress. You know, I think we at DPH and I think other technology providers welcome that. It brings some better definition. You know, I think the complexity we struggle with is states can have very different asks um, and, and that can be challenging. So, you know, in some cases, regulation by certain states can actually exceed what you know for example the EPA might right. request of a biological technology in other cases there may be no regulation like I said there's 13 states that exempt technology in this space and immediately approve it upon submission so bringing some I guess something that's easier to predict in terms of that regulatory process at least in the U.S I think is welcomed by many technology providers I won't say all but certainly many and, and I think certainly, you know, increasing the bar a bit on the ability to bring technology forward here, I I believe is a good thing. I think, you know, it will force technology providers to uh, have more credible science behind their technology, be able to describe how it works a bit better, and hopefully help, again, solve the biggest challenge we have is grower trust, <laughs> and, and helping growers realize that, you know, the science has come a long way on these technologies, and it continues to evolve. I mean, you know, no technology is necessarily can have all the answers about the technology. There's, you know, in some cases, especially when you're dealing with living microbes, there's probably always a little bit of ambiguity in terms of the actual mode of action, because there are still things that we're learning uh, on a daily basis. You know, I think of you know, some of the work that has gone on even just recently uh, around plant nutrition and the role that microbes play in plant nutrition. You know, it's shocking to me that in some, some of these studies that are so critical to understanding that, you know, we're we're talking about work that's been published, you know, just in the last 10 years, you know, things that you would think, you know, would have been understood many years ago are just being elucidated now in this space. So, you know, there's, you're not going to necessarily have all the answers, but I think the science has gotten a lot better to being able to describe the activity of these technologies and, you know, bring greater credibility for growers and how they work, but also understanding, again, you know, the promises of, uh, you know, in the case of corn, you know, everybody's out there, you know, selling something that's g- give them 10, 20, 30 more bushels of corn. You know, that's not realistic. There are going to be cases where you can see a big response, but more often than not, the response is going to be more muted. And having the right expectation, I think, is also really important. Uh, and that, again, that's contingent upon the technology provider to set that expectation. I would be wary of anybody that's out there talking about you know huge percentage increases in yield for example as a consequence of their technology i think that can happen in some cases but more often than not the response is something different than that
0: well it's going to be terrific to get you out in california in several weeks candice do you have anything to uh, final questions or uh, time to uh, wrap up
1: I don't have any other questions, but this has been such an informative conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. And for sure, I look forward to meeting you in Salinas.
2: Look forward to being back in California. Always do.
0: There you go. And, you know, the Central Coast in June is a little cooler and more temperate than the Central Valley, though we love our friends in the Central Valley. But uh, <laughs> occasionally we make note of that on the Central Coast. So uh, we'll look forward to uh, having you out here in a few weeks. Alex, thanks very much for your time. Candice, I'll let you take us home.
1: I would like to invite all of the Voices of the Valley listeners to please be sure to both like and subscribe to Voices of the Valley. And we'll look forward to another week together.
0: See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast, brought to you today by Reedley College. To learn more about Reedley College's Agriculture and Natural Resources program and the courses offered in ag technology, food safety, and plant science, you can visit readleycollege.edu.